This morning, I want to give you five things that you can do in your time alone with God. All right, five things to do in your time alone with God. Now, you might be thinking immediately, what do you mean, what time alone with God? When am I supposed to find that? Well, we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Your time alone with God is what we call the Christian discipline of solitude. Solitude. We've been doing a series on the disciplines or practices of the Christian life. This is the discipline or the practice of solitude. When Adam told us that we were going to do a series on the Christian disciplines, I immediately volunteered and said, I want to talk about the discipline of solitude. That's the one for me. Now, this week I was thinking about the irony of doing a sermon on solitude, on time alone, at the end of VBS week at River West Church. Because for a lot of people, they had no alone time at all this week, all right? It was complete chaos. And at our house, we had not only VBS week, but what we call Grandma Camp Week. Notice it's not Grandpa Camp Week, but it's Grandma Camp, which means that um, my grandchildren spent the week with us. So five nights, count them, five nights, we had an 11-year-old, 8-year-old, 6-year-old, and for one day we had the 2-year-old. And uh, that the 2-year-old pushed us over the edge. Uh, you just throw that into the equation, you know, and that little girl is like a magnet for danger. She has a sixth sense. If she can hurt herself, she's running in that direction, which means we're running after her. Add to that the dog, and you have quite a week. And my poor wife, she was really tired this week, and so... You know, at the end of the day, she would be tired. She was volunteering at VBS, so she was down here the first part of the day, and, and she came home. And, uh, and you know, it was like activity. It wasn't just VBS, but it was VBS and. Right? So you parents of young families, summertime, I'm like, really? VBS and, what are we going to do now? Okay, well, it's VBS and let's go to a movie. It's VBS and let's go to the park. Let's go to the library. Let's, you know, go anywhere that we can. It's VBS and it is the world of speed. So we went down to the world of speed museum. I took the kids. My wife was napping. If you've been, how many people have been to the world of speed? Okay, it's kind of amazing. You, you see it's down in Wilsonville and uh, they've got some great cars down there. And they actually have a stock car racing simulator that's, been adapted from a real stock car racer and they have this screen that wraps around and you get in that car and you're actually going on the track and the thing is just all the sounds the vibrations you're steering it the whole thing so I went up and I bribed the lady at the front to let the 11 year old and the 8 year old drive in the stock car racer and she's like well they can't do that they're too young and I'm like no they're not too young they can do it um, well, their feet won't reach the pedals. So I'm like, well, come on, we'll just jam something in there behind him and we'll get him up on the pedals. So sure enough, we got him in there. My granddaughter, 11 years old, she's never been behind the wheel. She's telling the guy, I don't know how to drive. I've never done this. And she just pulls out on the track and, you know, it's all the sounds. And she's going down there very cautiously, slowly, slowly, slowly. And then she gets going faster and faster and faster. Got up to 150 miles an hour. It was so awesome. She's going down the thing. Then we put the eight-year-old boy in there and he was not cautious at all. <laughs> just slammed the pedal to the floor and went right into the wall. Just boom. <laughs> 
great fun, let's do it again. So we did that, and uh, after the adrenaline rush of that, we went home to mellow out. Did we mellow out? No way. It was insane. So on Friday, came here, uh, the end of VBS, and I saw a lot of you, I saw a lot of parents here on Friday picking up their kids, and uh, I saw a lot of exhausted people, a lot of exhausted parents. I saw a lot of the workers, you know, kind of looking like, it's almost over. Then the parents came, took my grandchildren away. <laughs> then my wife went off with her small group for a little weekend at the coast. <laughs> then I went home, and the house was empty, and it was quiet. You could hear a pin drop. And I was alone, and I had one day to prepare a sermon on solitude. <laughs> so I made the most of it, right? I went into solitude, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to look at chapter 5 of Luke, and here's what I want to do. First, I want us to look at the pattern in the life of Jesus. So we're going to look at the pattern in the life of Christ, and then after we look at the pattern, we're going to talk about the practice of solitude, the practice of being alone with God. So pick up the story with me in Luke chapter 5 in verse 12. Now we're looking at the pattern in the life of our Lord Jesus. Remember, Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, and he's also our model. He's our model. So we're always looking to Jesus, and we're saying, Jesus, how did you live? What did you do? How can we emulate the ways of Christ? Let's take a look. Chapter 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Isn't that amazing? So this is the gospel. And in the gospel, we see story after story after story of Christ doing incredible things. And it would be so easy to read this passage and to miss verse 16. We could miss it. Because first you see the healing of the leper, and it's so tremendous. In, in my mind, every time I read that story, my mind, is just fireworks are going off in my mind because I'm picturing this man with leprosy coming to Jesus. I see the, part, the, the crowd parting, people backing away. 
and Jesus reaching out to touch him and this man being cleansed. He's so excited. He wants to tell everyone. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. But, you know, you get the feeling that he went and he told people anyway, right? Because why? What happens? More and more crowds showed up. Everybody knew. Everybody heard. There's a healer in town. And the crowds are coming and they're pressing in on Jesus. Then you get to verse 17 and, and Jesus is back at it. And this time, the Pharisees have come. Now, the Pharisees in this context, they're not pro-Jesus. Right? They're not fans. And this is the crowd that, you know, eventually they're going to completely turn against Jesus and, and they're going to have him crucified. But the power of God is there to heal and he's going to do another great healing. And so what you see is event, 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 miracle, 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 controversy. It's so exciting. It's so electric charge that we could easily miss. Verse 16, we could skip right over it. But what does it say? In verse 16, but Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and he would pray. You see the pattern? There's the pattern of Christ that's emerging from this text. There's a pattern. At the center of the pattern, Jesus is withdrawing and he's going to the desolate place. He's going to the solitary place. There's a pattern that emerges. And what we find when, when you read it carefully is that this is a repeated pattern in the life of Christ. Take a look at verse 16. But he would withdraw. I think the NIV version says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and there he prayed often because in the Greek language, it's all in this present active tense that's telling us that this is something that Jesus was always doing, but this is what Jesus would do. He didn't just do it once. He did it all the time. It's a repeated pattern in the life of our Savior, Jesus. Do you see the pattern? The crowd is pressing in on Jesus. It's noisy, it's active, it's distracting, it's filled with hurt and need. And Jesus disengages. Jesus disengages from the people. He disengages from the action. He disengages from the noise and the distractions. He just disengages from all of that. And then what does he do? Well, he focuses on his relationship with his heavenly father. He prays. Jesus disengages. He focuses on his relationship with his heavenly father. And then what does he do? What is the third part of the pattern? He re-engages. Verse 17. It just picks up the story. Now it happened that Jesus was somewhere and the Pharisees were there and the power of the Lord was there. And so what, what has happened? He disengaged. He focused on his relationship with the Father. And then he re-engaged in ministry. That's the pattern. I want you to notice at the center of that pattern, what is Jesus doing? 
Solitude for Jesus takes a specific form. The solitude of Christ isn't just withdrawing and leaving everybody behind and going into himself. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't go into the wilderness to get all zenned out and, uh, you know, to, to become mindful and do deep breathing exercises. That's not what he did. I mean, if you want to do that, that's fine. Do those things. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus went to the wilderness and he focused. He focused, and not just on himself, he focused on the Father and his relationship with the Father. It's all important. Why did Jesus do that? Jesus did that not so that he could leave people behind and not fulfill his ministry in the lives of people. He did that so that he could be successful in his ministry by returning in the strength of his relationship with his father. That's the pattern of Jesus in his life. You see the pattern? Everyone see the pattern? It's very clear there, all right? Now, here we are. We are followers of Christ. He is both our Savior and Lord, and he's the model for us of Christian life. So if that pattern is evident in the life of Christ as a repeated pattern, the question is, how can we bring that pattern into our lives as well? This is why we talk about the Christian discipline of solitude, or call it, if solitude is too threatening, just call it being alone with God. Being alone with God. Why is it a discipline of the Christian life? Well, it's because this is the practice, this is the pattern in the life of Jesus, and I wanna be like Jesus. Can I tell you something? If you wanna be like Jesus, you're going to have to spend some time alone. You're going to have to spend time alone in order to be with Jesus. Where is this place that Jesus went? Jesus went, what does it say in our ESV? Oh, to a, to a desolate place. Desolate. The Greek word eremos. It can mean the desert a desert place or a deserted place or a desolate place or a solitary place or a lonely place. It's translated in many ways. But basically, you know what it means? It means you're alone. That's what it means. If you ever get the chance to go over to Israel and, and you go out to the desert, you'll be amazed at the desert in Israel. I mean, it's like no desert anywhere that I've ever seen. It is so barren. It is so desolate. And you know what? Nobody really hangs out out in that place. If you go out there, you're pretty much hanging out by yourself. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was by himself. So I want to give you today five things that you can do when you spend time alone with God. But before I can give you those five things, you've got to figure out a way to get alone with God. And this is a big part of the challenge, isn't it? To be, just to be alone with God. And for a lot of people, that's a really difficult thing to do. It might be difficult, for one thing, just because of your personality. You might be the kind of a person that just to be alone is really not your thing. My wife, my beautiful, amazing wife, she grew up with 10 brothers and sisters. And this is a true story. She told me one day, 
that when she was a senior in high school, until that senior year in high school, she can only remember one time in her life being alone for one hour. Her whole life, she came home one day from high school and nobody was home. She's like, what? There's nobody here. She spent one entire hour by herself. It was horrible. It was horrible for her. Now, in my life, I, I think of myself sort of as an abandoned child. I spent hours and hours and hours by myself. When we got married, I discovered in short order that we had a problem. <laughs> I mean, imagine this. So because I'm an introvert anyway. She's a total extrovert. I'm an introvert. She never spent an hour alone. I spent half my life alone, and then we got married. It took about 36 hours to realize that we had a problem. So we're on our honeymoon, and, you know, after, you know, about 36 hours or something, I'm, I'm like, well, you know, honey, um, I think I'm going to take a little personal walk. <laughs> you mean you don't want to be with me? Now, I realized in that moment, we have a problem. We have a problem. This is a serious thing. Now, that's another sermon, okay? That's a marital sermon. But I just tell you that, that different people have different personalities. And for some people, it's a challenge to spend that time alone because of your personality. And I will tell you this, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you want to be like Jesus, you're going to have to spend some time alone with God, and it's crucial for your life. But here's another reason why it's so hard for us to spend time alone. It's because of the days that we live in. Now, we live in this crazy, out-of-control society where everything is going a million miles an hour. And not only that, we live in this digital universe where we carry a device with us in purse or pocket which essentially allows the entire world to ring your bell and get into your head at any moment. And you're not alone if you're by yourself with your digital device. That's not the same as being alone. Think about it. Some people say we live in what's called the attention economy. The attention economy, why? Because here's the thing that most people don't have. We have access to information more than you can you could ever imagine. What we don't have is time and an attention span. And everyone's trying to get your attention. I read on the internet this week that the average American has the attention span of a goldfish. <laughs> now, I don't know. It's probably true, right? Because it's on the internet. Um, <laughs> but it feels that way. Doesn't it feel that way? And it's irritating because they know everything about me. They know what I'm thinking. I don't know who they are, but they know what I'm thinking. I pull up my Instagram, and now that there's ads on Instagram, it's like I, I scroll through the thing, and there it is. There's an ad, and they know. I am interested in guitars, and they know. And the guitar comes up on my Instagram, and it's the perfect guitar, all right? 
Have you ever noticed that? Like whatever you're into, whatever you just checked out, whatever you just thought about, boom, boom. It's right there in your face, right? The crowd is pressing in on Jesus. Let me tell you something. The whole world is pressing in on your life. And the goal of the whole world is to get your attention and to keep your attention. And being alone with God means that we're giving our attention to God. Do you see where the battle is here, where the struggle is here? So to get alone, you've got to be by yourself, all right? And you've got to turn off the device. Have you ever been in a situation where you get somewhere and you realize you have no reception? And the first thing you do is you go, oh, no, I have no reception. And then the second thing you do is you go, hey, I don't have any reception. This is kind of cool. Actually, I, don't, I forgot what this was like, you know? And you keep checking your phone for reception. There's no reception. And then you realize, I'm going to put that thing down. You, something will literally physically change in your body at that moment when you realize that you're off the grid and that you're actually alone with your thoughts. And if there's no one else around, it's amazing what happens, okay? Now, you can filter. You have filtered things on your phone. Filter this, filter that. Do this, do that, do that. But you know what? At the end of the day, there's only one filter, and it's you. You're the filter. You turn the thing off. Now, go to the desert. Go to the Aramos. Go to a place where you're alone. How much time should you spend there? Well, you could spend a week. That would be awesome. So for the last 30 years, I've spent one week a year just off on a personal retreat by myself, best I can going off the grid, and that's awesome. Now, most people don't want to do that, so let's scale it down. How about one day? One day alone with no device, just one day. Could you do that? How about a half a day? Let's go half a day. How about an hour? One hour of your life. Where can you find an hour? My wife said, I said, I'm doing this thing on, on solitude and being alone. She said, man, these people are so busy these days and they have kids and work and obligations and all these different things. And it's hard for people to be alone. I said, yeah, I know that's true. But on the other hand, I wonder if these people go to the gym. I wonder if they work out. I wonder if they ever watch Netflix. <laughs> You know, I'll bet you you can find an hour of time. Folks, put it on your calendar. Jesus regularly spent time alone with his heavenly father. So what are you going to do? I'm going to give you five things that you can do when you spend time alone with God. And the first thing is the most important. It's the most important thing. The first thing you can do is remember who you are in the eyes of God. All right, now just pause, think about that. That's, what, that's not what you expected me to say. Remember who you are in the eyes of God. That's your first assignment when you spend time alone with God. Now, why would I say that? I'm gonna go back to the life of my Lord Jesus. I'm thinking about his life. I'm thinking about the beginning of his ministry. Do you remember how Jesus began his ministry? 
he began with his baptism. Let's, let's look at it. Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Christ. Matthew chapter 3, and let's start with verse 16, just to refresh our memory. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. There's that same word, the Eremos, to a solitary place. He was led out to a place where he was alone to be tempted by the devil. It's a strange story, isn't it? Think, wow, what, is that? what does it mean? Well, here's the first thing I want you to realize. Jesus, when he began his ministry, the very thing that started, that initiated everything, was the word of God coming to him, the word of his father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well placed. That was the launching point. That was the starting point. It's an identity issue. And it's beautiful because Jesus had not done anything yet. Jesus hadn't yet taught. No sermon on the mount. That hadn't happened yet. Jesus had not yet healed anybody. No miracles. Didn't walk on water. Jesus hadn't done battles with the Pharisees, cast demons out. Nothing. And the father said, this is my son. In him I am well pleased. What was Jesus thinking about in the wilderness for 40 days? Now, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days, and at the end of that, the devil came to him, the end of it. What was Jesus thinking about for 40 days? Well, we can speculate on a lot of things that Jesus might have been thinking or praying about, but I think there's one thing we can say for certain, and that is that Jesus had the words of the Father ringing in his ear and in his heart, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It cannot be a coincidence that when Satan shows up, the first thing that he said to Jesus is, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you're the son of God, it's an identity issue. Now, when you go into a place by yourself, you shut down your device, you close the door, you go out to the forest, whatever you do. It's really hard not to bring a boatload of people with you in your mind, even though you're out of their presence, but you bring them with, they're in your head, you know. And it's amazing how we are sensitive to the feelings and the opinions of others, isn't it? We always were social beings. We always want to know where do we stand and what does so-and-so think of us and, oh, this person's mad at me and this person thinks I'm great. And it's almost impossible not to process all of that when you're by yourself. You kind of, we just do those things. Here's what you need to know. There's only one opinion that matters and it's the opinion of your heavenly father and what he has to say about you. Jesus launched his ministry with the affirming word of his heavenly father telling him his identity. 
and he was able to live out of that. You know, Jesus in his life, he had people on the left and the right, and people on the left, those people were big fans. Like the leper, he's a big fan of Jesus. And all of his friends, they're like, you healed my buddy, the leper, this is amazing. And they brought crowds of people, and those crowds of people, they're pro-Jesus. Like, Jesus, you're amazing. Jesus, you're a prophet. Jesus, you're a healer. You're awesome. But on the other side, he had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are like, this guy is the devil. This guy's going to destroy our nation. We got to put this guy to death. You have two extremes on both sides of Jesus. Actually, on both sides of, of chapter 5, verse 16, you have two extreme different scenarios. And Jesus withdraws, and there he communes and he prays with his Father. And I can guarantee you that one of the issues that happened in that place alone with the Father is the Father is reaffirming, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I've learned in my life that there are people that are pro-Pastor Guy and there's people that are against Pastor Guy. <laughs> you kind of figure this out through the years, you know. And some people are like, oh, Pastor, you're so amazing. We love your teaching and gosh, you know, just you walk on water. I'm like, well, not really, but you know, I'm really happy that you like me. <laughs> and then there's other people and they're like, you know, Pastor Guy, we're not into your ministry. Like you're a heretic. I had a guy one time come to me at the back of the church. I did my sermon, gave it my all. I went to the back of the church and this guy just walks right over to me with like an intense look in his face. And he said, Pastor, I want you to know that you will be responsible for everyone in this room going directly to hell. You're sending these people to hell because of what you just preached. And, and what I preached, you know, it was, it was a thing on, on creation in the age of the earth. And this guy was a young earth creationist. And I'm, I basically said, hey, you know, in our church, you can be a young earth creationist. You can be an old earth creationist. We love you. Jesus loves you. That's all I said. And this guy said, you are going to hell and everyone in this room is going to hell and you're a heretic. And I said, well, thank you for sharing. <laughs> thank you for sharing. And, you know, we'll see you next week. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> I guess not. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> but, you know, you kind of learn. You learn in life that if you live your life based on the views of others, whether it's they think you're great or they think you're the devil, you know, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. There's only one opinion that matters, and that is your heavenly Father. What does he say about you? When you spend time alone, the first thing that you have to do is you have to remember who you are in the eyes of your heavenly Father. And that's a gospel thing. You know what you bring with you into your alone time? You bring the gospel with you. Bring the gospel into that alone time. Let it inform your time with God. So you have to bring your Bible. You bring those verses, you bring the gospels with you, you spend some time and you hear the voice of God telling you who you are. Read Ephesians 1 sometime when you spend time alone and ask God to show you who you are in Christ. Oh man, this is gonna transform your life. And then you know what? When you re-engage, because now you've withdrawn, but then you're gonna re-engage in the strength of your relationship with your heavenly father. That's awesome. Here's the second thing that you can do when you spend time alone. You can recognize the presence of God 
in your own life story. Now, you weren't expecting me to say this one either, but I want you to think about it. Recognize the presence of God in your own life story. Why would I say that? Let me share a psalm with you. Try this one. Psalm 63, verse 5. For God alone, my soul, oh, my soul, wait in silence. No, I'm reading the wrong verse. That's a good one too, though. I like that. Uh, Psalm 63, verse 5. Here we go. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. So it's the night, and you wake up in the night. Anybody here ever wake up in the middle of the night? <laughs> I always wake up. It's like 2.30 to 3. I just wake up. I go, boom, I'm awake. And you know what I realize? I'm kind of alone, you know? I mean, even my wife is there, but she's sleeping, and, you know, and it's, the room is dark, and, and I go, oh, this is, it's really just kind of me and God. This is my own little Eremos moment here. It's just the solitude moment, and I have many thoughts on my mind. So what are you going to do? Well, here's what... The psalmist says, my soul will be satisfied with rich food. I'm going to remember God in the night. And did you notice the way that he put it in verse 6? He says, when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, verse 7, for you have been my help, have been, past tense, you have been my help. So there's a remembrance. There's a remembrance I learned this from St. Augustine and his book, which is called The Confessions of St. Augustine, which is basically one of the greatest books ever written. And it's, it's amazing and it's super deep. And, you know, what Augustine did in this book was he went back in his memory and he went through his entire life from, you know, infancy, childhood. He goes through his entire life and what he does is he looks back through his memory to see where God was at work. Even when he didn't recognize it, like at the time, because he'll talk about it in his book, he'll say, yeah, you know, when I was a youth, I was doing this and that and the other, and I didn't even know you, God, and he's talking to God. I didn't even know you, God, but you knew me. And now I look back and now I see it was your hand that was guiding me. And so his confessions are confessions from his memory about the presence of God, even when he didn't know it, but now he knows it. Why? Because he's looking back at his own story to find the hand of God and then to respond in praise and trust in the present. Okay, that's, that's Augustine. So I learned this many years ago because when I would go on my week by myself, I'd always read the confessions and I started to learn. So I started to practice in my own life. I thought, well, if it worked for him, it can work for me. So I would take a half a day. Now, you can do this in a half a day. You can do this if you do like an hour a day for, you know, three or four days. Just go through your life. Make a timeline. And go through your story of your life prayerfully and say, God, where were you in my life? Even now that I look back, I didn't know it then, but now I can see how you were leading and guiding and protecting and bringing me to the place that I am today. 
And you do that prayerfully and with gratitude. And all of a sudden you see God comes alive in your story. God is in your story. He's a living God. He cares for you. He's at work in your story. Oh, in my time alone with God, I take some time to see him and to see his hand. Here's the third thing that you can do in your time alone with God. You can listen for the voice of God. Now, that's probably what you thought I was going to say. Listen. Listen for God. God speaks to us. Famously, in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 19, he spoke to a prophet named Elijah. Where was Elijah? He was in the Eremos. He was in the wilderness. He was on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, which is basically a desert mountain. And he was there by himself alone with God. And famously, the Bible says that there was this wind that tore through the mountain. And it must have been like a tornado because it was smashing rocks against each other. But then it goes on to say, but God was not in that wind. Then there was an earthquake. And I imagine more rocks are tumbling and it's loud and it's scary. But God was not in the earthquake. And then... 1 Kings 19, you can read it later. The Bible says, and then a still small voice. And Elijah said, that's God. And he covered his face because he knew he was in the presence of God. A still, small voice. No wonder we can't hear God with all the noise, you know? What do you bring with you when you go into your time alone? You bring the gospel. You bring your memories and you pray through them, you bring a pad of paper and a pen, and you'd be ready to write down what you think God is saying to you. I once came back from Canada with 70 pages of notes that I, I thought God, all 70 pages, it was like, this is amazing, God's speaking to me. One time I came back from an entire week and I had one word, one word on a piece of paper. Which was more powerful, 70 pages or one word? I don't know, it's up for grabs. They both were. I can't predict what God will say to you, but I promise you, God's got your number. He's trying to speak into your life. Write something down. What do you think God's saying to you in your life? Here's the fourth thing that you can do in your time alone with God. You can pray for others. Now, Jesus often withdrew into a lonely place, and there he prayed, it says. He prayed. What did he pray about? Well, we know from other passages in Luke that he prayed for his disciples. Chapter 6, he spent all night praying. He prayed for his disciples. Then he appointed apostles. He prayed for his disciples. You know, even when you go off by yourself, it's hard to really leave people behind. So what can you do? You pray for them. Pray for them. Now, think about everything I'm describing to you. Like some people are like, I don't know what to do if I spend time alone with God. I'm giving you hours of things that you can do. But one thing you can do is you don't know what to do. Just pray for people. Just make a list and start praying for people, right? And that leads me to the fifth thing that you can do, and that is to recommit your life to your calling and your mission. Recommit. You know, when you pray for people, that prepares you to re-engage. Recommit to your calling and your mission. Now, some of you are thinking, well, you have a calling and a mission because you're a pastor. But I want to tell you this. Every Christ follower 
is called to join Jesus in mission and on mission. Every one of us, we're called. What context has God placed you in? God has given you a career. He's given you a place of employment. That's your context. It's a missional context for you. God has said, I want you to go and be my representative, my witness in that place. That's your calling. That's your life stage, all right? If you're a single person, you have relationships with friends, that's, a, that's an arena for you to live out your calling as a Christ follower. If you're married and you have children, it's, that's your setting. You have a stage of life. You're a young parent. You have young kids. It's busy, but that's your calling. That's your life stage. It's your mission. You have a church context. All of these things are the context of our calling to follow Christ. Now, here's the thing. When you get along with God, what are you doing? You're strengthening your relationship with the Father so that you can re-engage in your calling in the world. And if you don't strengthen your relationship with the Father, you will not be able to engage for long in a meaningful way. You must operate out of the strength of your relationship with God. That's what the time of solitude is for. It's like a drain on a battery. If you never spend time alone with God, it's like you're doing good things, doing good things, maybe doing some bad things, <laughs> doing some good things, and the battery is draining, 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 draining. Best intentions in the world. Unless you recharge in your relationship with the Father, you won't have the resources to follow Jesus in his mission. I'm going to give you now another reason for the spiritual disciplines because we've heard two in our series so far. We've heard that we engage in the spiritual disciplines so that we can enjoy our relationship with Jesus and that we can become like Jesus. Those are two reasons why we engage in spiritual disciplines or practices, and it's true, but I'm giving you now a third. The third reason we engage in spiritual disciplines is so that we can join Jesus on mission. Joining him in mission, making a difference in the world. And we have to do that rooted in our relationship with God. And that relationship gets re-energized when we spend time alone with God. And then we recommit. And what do we do? Re-engage. You re-engage. You go back into the fray. You go back to the relationships with people. You go back to the noise and to the activity and to the distractions and the needs and the hurts of the world. You go back. You re-engage. That's the pattern of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And it's amazing. It's amazing. So I want to recommend this to you. I want you to think about it. as much to think about there. And um, may the Lord cause us to grow, to grow in maturity, grow in wisdom, grow in Christ-likeness as we pursue these practices. I'm going to have Colin and the worship team come forward, and I'm going to say a prayer for us. So let's do that. Let's pray right now. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the wisdom of your word, for the beauty of Christ our Savior, for the privilege of being sons and daughters of the living God through the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that through the blood of Christ, 
we are given the gift of forgiveness. Through the resurrection of Christ, we are given the hope of eternal life. Through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we are given the power to walk in the way of Christ as his witnesses in this world. Thank you, Lord, for how you see us. Thank you, Lord God, for this congregation and the opportunity that we have to join you in mission. And Father, I pray that we will grow in wisdom and grow in these wonderful practices, Lord, and that you'll use us in the world because of it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.